0: back to the dark side. I'm your host Brianna and I'm Paige and this is Dark Adaptation. i'm your host brianna because it's like second nature but today we are both the hosts we're co-hosts we are co-hosts of episode 64 64 which is wild that is wild and the listener out there is probably like wait what co-hosts Mm-hmm. what the heck all that about what's going on you know what that you know you know what that means for you listener it means you get collaboration episode a special episode a special episode that's right Paige and me Brianna have created a collaboration episode we're teaming up which is so cool and it's something that we have been talking about and here we are yeah fucking doing it doing it right and yeah I'm very excited we both have so much information that we both don't know about either that is the best part is like yeah it's a collaboration but we have our designated areas that we were like okay you stay in your lane i'll stay in my lane and then we will just do See an episode yeah so like you're obviously sticking to your spooky cryptid folklore side
1: and much yeah. more
0: i'm sure and then i'm sticking to like dark history true crime you know the dash of a haunted place you know mm-hmm. sprinkle really fun and i both we both have so much to talk about so should we just like dive right into this thing sure let's dive right in do you want to kind of announce what we're doing so Paige, Brianna, do you do you want to dive in and kick off this episode by telling us a little bit about the bridge water triangle i would love to you can tell us what that is, and where it is, and all that stuff. I can definitely tell you that, yeah. So, it is located in southeastern Massachusetts. Um, It's also known as, like, the Massachusetts Paranormal Vortex. And we briefly touched on it in the first episode about Pukwudgies. Hell yeah, we did. And so, this is, like, a 200 square miles, roughly, like, within the towns of Rehoboth. rehoboth rehoboth that's what i would say freetown and abington and um this area covers huckamuck swamp wildlife management area and like the freetown fall river state forest as well and huckamuck is native algonquin word for the devil or evil spirit okay well that just sets the tone doesn't it it does (laughs) it's spooky why else would we be talking about it though right Yeah, that's true. We talk about it because um, like you said, you already briefly touched on it. And we had uh, our friend Stephen over at Spoils of Horror fucking like an eon ago. He's probably like, did I even recommend Bridgewater Triangle? And I'm like, yes, you did, Stephen. That was a long time ago, but here we are. Bridgewater Triangle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gotta talk about spooky evil stuff. Tyson, what was that? I haven't lived in Boston in 35 years. You're a freak. All right. Anyway, Paige, you want to keep going? (laughs) Sure. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of different things. I'm going to be talking about reports of Pukwudges, which I'm not going to touch on too much, just because you can check out the whole episode about that. Heck yeah. What was that? 25, I think. Yep. Lucky number 25. Episode 25, Pukwudges. Mm-hmm. But I'm also going to be talking about some giant snakes, the red-eyed dogs, ghosts and poltergeist activity, weird balls of light, Bigfoot, UFOs, and it's known for a site of cult activity and rituals, which could include animal sacrifices and ritualistic murders. So you saw the list of anything spooky to talk about, and we were like, check, 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 yep, check, yep. check, check. Exactly. Here we go, Bridgewater Triangle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Okay, and then I've got some true crime, some dark history, and some haunted place, and that's that's what you get from me. That's all you're getting, sneak peek <laughs> of nothing. It's going to be a fucking long-ass episode, but it's going to be good. It's going to be good. So settle in, guys. Yeah, everybody get like a nice little drink, I don't know, cozy up to something that you love, like a, a cat or a dog or a dog or a good blanket it's, it's july but that's fine maybe you have a central layer maybe you're a lizard person you cuddle that <laughs> <laughs> dragon. we don't judge we don't are judge you a lizard here. person cool nice to have you so we're gonna gonna talk about like <laughs> a his, little bit of history to it and so according to lauren coleman Author of Mysterious America, there was, quote, an expedition of Massachusetts, an archaeologist discovered a, an 8,000 year old Indian burial site on grassy island in the Hockamock Swamp. And when the graves were opened, the red ochre within the tombs allegedly bubbled and dissolved mysteriously, and every photograph taken of the site failed to develop, end quote. Oh, uh, that is super spooky. Also, how rude of you to open all those graves right just leave them where they are oh my god. But leave the why is that, does that be- such a like hallmark of something very paranormal and creepy it's always like some people are pumped they have their phone camera whatever and it always malfunctions in some way and you're like god damn it one step ahead of me again ghoul well it's a sign it's a sign to just leave it the fuck alone you experienced it you're lucky enough there you go We're unlucky go. enough I guess depending how you look at it but I would be like this fuck is sick <laughs> picture picture <laughs> just try it anyways try right from the hip just like meet with me i would totally have my flash on like an idiot <laughs> <laughs> i can outsmart the ghost i can just hold it at my hip <laughs> and so just to kind of touch on like puck um in Raynham, the bottom left corner of the triangle which will show you a picture on instagram of the triangle that we're talking about mm-hmm. um there is an old Random Taunton Greyhound track, which has been closed since 2009. But in my first episode, I mentioned a, na- a man named Bill Russo who encountered a Pukwiji. And Bill encountered it while walking his German shepherd, Samantha, in the area. Right. And when he saw it, he thought it was a child in a Halloween costume. And going back to a quote from an article written by Susanna Sudborough in the Taunton Gazette during the Pugwaji episode, he thought it to be, quote, three feet tall, maybe four feet tall, kind of like a stuffed animal, think teddy bear, 100 pounds or so, with a pot belly, eyes a little too big for his head. And then it was motioning to me, beckoning me over with its paw or arm or whatever, end quote. Or whatever. Or whatever. I mean, thing sticking out of its potbelly. belly <laughs> just, i'm having so many flashbacks to up. that pupuji episode ross just on cloud nine like oh, I love these little guys right <laughs> little little pot belly episode 25 make sure you listen yeah take a listen and but according to an article written by Susanna sudborough during her time at the enterprise uh the creature uttered iwa to cure to russo before it disappeared and russo believes it was trying to say we want you come here end quote I could picture it. Little well, creepy ass stuffed animal just like E Watchu here. hair you here, come here. here. They're okay, like what? Ewok what? Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> Daddy Daddy, what do you want? <laughs> and so I also mentioned that there was um a giant snake. It did, it did mention that. And in 1939, CCC workers were on a project site in the King Phillips Street area near the edge of Hockamock Swamp, under um, our upper middle part of the triangle, and reported, quote, seeing a huge snake as large around and black as a stovepipe. Ooh. The snake coiled for a moment, raised its spade like head, and disappeared into the swamp, end quote. No fucking thank you. And from this, this is where the local legend that the snake or other large snakes appear once every, like, seven years or so. Oh, God. Ew. Gross. Like, they're just burrowing underground or something and emerge to scare the shit out of people. hmm Ew, that's foul. I know. It's so creepy. I would never go in there. No, already, like, if you're, like, going for a walk and you see and I guess, quote-unquote, normal snake. Mm-hmm. Like, just, like, a small-ish snake. You're already like... Bleh. No, thank you. I'm I peaceful, peaceful. Please don't strike. <laughs> I didn't even see you. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah, you're not even there. <clears throat> and um, also in so for red-eyed dogs, well, wow. in 1976, a report came out out of um, Abington, which is at the very top of the triangle, of a dog who attacked two ponies. Quote. Local firefighter Philip Kane, the owner of the ponies, saw the dog standing over the bloody carcasses gnawing at their necks. He said that the dog eluded um extensive police searches and for a period of several weeks terrorized the community, end quote. That dog is a menace. Mm-hmm. Somebody get a dog catcher out here. Get someone out here cleaning up these streets. And all of the mess that this dog has made. hmm. Imagine you go out there and you see two of your horses gone yeah that's that's wild do we know how big this dog was like to take down ponies jesus it'd probably be like wolf size or bigger i would assume I guess it doesn't matter if you have red eyes you're demonic and you can do whatever you want you take <laughs> down whatever prey you want like are you kidding you talk about size right now i literally have red eyes <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then in the days following children were kept inside for their recess and many of the local residents like armed themselves with uh, thousands reported sightings of this elusive black dog that's wild this isn't even like a one-off little like urban legend thing like literally people were locking down the whole town that is crazy yeah and that there was many reports about seeing mm-hmm. this thing all over the place oh and, um Officer Frank Curran was possibly the last to see or report a sighting of this black dog along the railroad tracks. He claims to have fired a shot from his gun, but missed and according to his recount, the black dog turned away and slowly walked off in the opposite direction. It was just like, oh, I see the message goodbye. you know what it reminds me of Achoo-eater. a skinwalker oh ew right oh. <gasps> my mind is blown you're right right it was like okay it there was the eight thousand year old indian burial ground oh. there we know that there was the wampanoag tribe that lived there mm-hmm. who's they to say that they didn't walkers, have a yeah. witch especially if it, it was like more of like a wolf-esque mm-hmm. rather than just a straight-up dog yeah Ooh, that's really creepy oh my god maybe you have solved it it was a skin walker. Right? So now you're hearing, it, you're hearing it here first. It's not just red-eyed dogs in the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm-hmm. It's likely literal skinwalkers. Exactly. So again, check, check, check. Check. Add skinwalker <laughs> to the list. Likely a skinwalker and check. Yeah, and I so um th- the fact that it could just turn back into a human if it was a skinwalker, mm-hmm. right? And then it disappears and that's how it evades police. Exactly. So, I mean yeah, what else could you want? That is insane. I wonder if there's other cases of skinwalkers having bright red eyes. Well, in uh, when we were talking about it, um, there was a part where uh, they were at the ranch and the girls said that they saw those red eyes. That's so true. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like red eyes are potentially a theme. Of evil. Of the evil. And even a theme potentially. Within the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe. Because I have a tale about the ghost of a hitchhiker that haunts Route 44. Ooh, spooky. This ghost. He's tall. He's a muscular man. He's got red hair and a big red beard. And he's wearing a flannel shirt, dirty jeans, and work boots. And some people have even seen him with glowing red eyes hot. <laughs> hot hot hot. <laughs> you you sold them I <laughs> know right and then and glowing red eyes so like if you could get past that hot <laughs> smoke it hot route 44 is a rural oh fuck a rural roadway rural. I cannot ever say that every time we, we do a fucking episode that has rural I fucking it rural, up. rural roadway there you go. That runs from Plymouth, Massachusetts to uh, Kerhonkson. Kerhonkson? Kerhonkson. In New York. So that is like almost a 240 mile stretch of road. So it's wow. a long ass highway. Mm-hmm. But the part of Route 44 that has countless reports of this hot hitchhiker. <laughs> Is the stretch of road through Rehoboth and Seekonk, which is in the bottom left corner of the triangle, more mm-hmm. towards like Rhode Island. Okay. So as you travel through this area of Route 44, some people report seeing the ginger man on the side of the road as they drive by. I like the twang. Ginger man. Some people claim to have seen him keeping pace with their vehicles as they're driving. Oh, my God. That's terrifying. Right? Like flying down Route 44 and you're like, um, there's a ginger man just straight up. <laughs> okay. Keeping pace. Um, Is he like running, <laughs> keeping pace, or is he floating, keeping I pace? I We got to get some first-hand accounts here. What, what was he like? Does he just kind of float off to the side? Does he hang on to your car? Like, what? Yeah. Is he white knuckling it for dear life? Is he just strolling along? He looks like he's... Stroll in because you can't see his feet, which are just going a mile a minute trying to keep up. Like the agent from uh, the Matrix as he's just fucking running. So, I mean, maybe it's all of them. Maybe Maybe it depends on his mood. Some, uh, let me see here. Where was I? (laughs) Some people think that when they see him just like on the side of the highway, that he's in distress because it looks like, I mean, he does look a little bit disheveled. He's got like a lot of hair, big, huge beard, dirty jeans, and they're like, This guy's in distress. We should stop and pick him up. Mm -hmm. So they do. But then he vanishes. Right. When like he goes to like reach for the door. He's just gone. And he is out of sight. Nowhere to be seen. But the people in their car that are like, what the fuck? Where'd this guy go? They can just hear this like ominous disembodied laughter. (gasps) That's so creepy. And they're like, goodbye. I honestly (laughs) wouldn't even stop to begin with. So same. Me neither. But some people are a little bit more naive or maybe nicer. I'm not sure which one. Brave. Brave. All three. Some people have just been like driving along Route 44 and they look in their rearview mirror and they see this man just sitting in the backseat. <gasps> and before they can like totally register, like, what the fuck? Like, there's someone in my car. Yeah. He vanishes and then he's heard laughing maniacally or screaming through the car radio. Oh, my God. Through the car radio? And that, like, max volume, like, blowing your speakers out, screaming or laughing maniacally. Oh, my God. Imagine how jarring that would be because you would already be startled because you looked in the rear view and you're like, what the fuck? And that's like a worst nightmare situation, like movie situation where someone is creeping in the back seat mm-hmm. and then they either stab you through the seat or strangle yeah, you from the seat i got real hype there Punch my microphone <laughs> put like <laughs> a little rope around your seat just a bag over you your up. head and anything it, anything and instead he's like peace out but i'm gonna scream as loud as i can through your radio and he probably does it loud enough that he blasts your speakers and ruins oh, yeah. them and now you gotta replace them that's just rude yeah this guy's a menace He's like a, a red-eyed dog menace. Maybe he's. A, is it is a skinwalker. Maybe <gasps> skinwalkers, for some reason, have decided they're going to take on a, a disheveled ginger. <laughs> he's like, no, I don't think. So. Favorite skin to wear. it <laughs> was a hitchhiker. They're from like, I've heard people think this is hot. <laughs> <laughs> so, hot. so after our during encounters with this hitchhiker, unexplained paranormal phenomena occur. Such as electronic devices malfunctioning, like your GPS or your phone that's connected to the car or whatever. Or your car battery can just die unexpectedly. Stop fucking with my shit. He, he only knows to bring it to a fucking A 10. He's always 11. at a 10. He's like, I'll surpass that. I'm an 11 at all times. Well, that maniacal laughter definitely puts that at 11. Yeah, that's, that's really creepy. I don't know if you ever watched, like, old Batman cartoons. No. There's this one. And the Joker, like, has, like, laughing gas that is, like, toxic to people. So they'll, like, start laughing because it's laughing gas.
1: But they're horrified
0: because they can't stop. So they're, like, crying. I think think they're scared, but they're laughing. Something. It's like you're bringing back a memory of something like that. Okay. Yeah. But, like, it's just so disturbing. That is disturbing. That's what I think of with this guy maniacally laughing. So some people even report accidentally running this ghostly man over or driving right through him. So they obviously stop because they're like, what the hell did I just run a person over? And they get out like panicked and there's nobody in sight. He's vanished. I wonder if he like makes his body semi-solid so that you feel the bumps as you're (gasps) driving over him. He would because he seems to be a little bit of a. He would be like, as he's like maniacally laughing, like (laughs) (laughs) right. (laughs) (laughs) And then, in the meantime, while they're like trying to inspect to see if they hit anybody, he's like, "I'm also gonna fuck up your car battery." Yeah, probably. And that's terrifying because you like stop because you want to do the right thing and get out, and then they fuck it with it, and it turns off, and you can't go anywhere, and now you're just stuck in the middle of nowhere. Stuck in the middle of nowhere with a freak. That's disembodied maniacal laughter is heard floating through the air No, thank you no thanks so this man's identity is unknown many speculate that he was hit by a car or involved in some type of fatal car accident and it would have been in this area of route 44 and now he like haunts this part of the road and he's just trapped there but i recommend and i'm sure you will agree Do not pick up this man's. No. If you're driving down Route 44 and you think you see like a disheveled-ish ginger man's ladies, people, he may be hot. Do not pick him up. Hot. Hot. But no. You'd be like, oh, that was kind of nice to look at. Anyway, (laughs) keep driving. (laughs) Don't stop because you're obviously only going to get fucking stressed out. Because he's like, I'm, I'm going to mess with your radio. I'm going to mess with your car battery. Mm-hmm. I'm going to scream as loud as I can and then laugh and then make you pull over and not even get in your car. And then maybe you'll even run me over. But it won't matter because I'm a ghost. Yeah. All those things. All those things. Don't even get in the car with him. Such an asshole. <laughs> but hot. <laughs> but hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So while I'm on the topic of ghostly specters, I'll just go straight into this next haunted place. It's the Hornbine School, and this is a historic one-room schoolhouse located at 144 Hornbine Road in Rehoboth, and which sits on the edge of the bottom of the triangle. Mm-hmm. Now, this school was built in 1862. It's a single-story wood frame structure with clapboard siding, a brick chimney at the rear, and the side walls have four windows that are are irregularly placed so they're not like even no across it's just like a window here, a window there. Everywhere. My OCD would it go crazy. I thought that was funny. That that was like worth noting in this article. It was like, and those windows are fucking irregularly placed. Fuck those windows. Because that person it doesn't <laughs> stand for that. <laughs> they're like, probably no. they're trying to like photograph it, line it all up on their camera because you get the grid lines, and they're like, this isn't working. These goddamn windows. windows are irregularly placed. Who would do such a thing? Um, another menace from 1862 massachusetts full of menaces what's up with your windows man stupid windows so the school it was closed in 1937 and then it was converted into a private residence didn't last very long it was abandoned and then it was eventually just left to like fall into disrepair yeah because it's probably haunted. haunted and it's like just small and random and the windows are irregularly placed and who the hell wants that no that's why the ghosts are there, because of these goddamn windows. They can't get over it either. <laughs> Apparently someone did want this, though. And that someone is the Hornbine School Association, because they're a nonprofit, and they snatched up that school. They were like, this cannot sit in disrepair anymore. I'm taking it. It's 1968. I'm going to list this as a National Register of Historical Places. It's not... Trying to save it. <laughs> Give them some credit. Listed on the National Register. <laughs> not of... <laughs> And that was in 1983. They're like, this is a historic piece of Massachusetts. This is one of the only, like, one-room schoolhouses left standing that's actually salvageable. We're going to take it back. And they did. And now it operates as a local history museum. Oh, nice. The little people that work there, they'll be wearing, like, 19th century clothing. And kids will come for a day. And they'll have, like, the whole experience of fucking old school schoolhouse. That's cool. Good learning experience for the kitties. Oh, yeah. Now, uh, this place is only open, like, shit, there's a sign that says. It's like the second and fourth Sunday of the month or something like that. So it's not open all the time. It's only open very seldom. Okay. So that means for the most part, it's just sitting there locked up and just. Collecting ghosts. Collecting ghosts and just being a little ghoul haven. (laughs) and residents who live near the school on hornbine road they have reported hearing voices emanating from inside the building oh even when it's locked up and closed down they'll hear just a little chatter coming people who've looked through the windows when it's closed have seen the apparitions of a teacher and students that are dressed in 19th century clothing inside and they're just hanging out like class is still in session wow that's crazy and then sometimes when people look through and they see that this little class is happening they'll see that the students have just all turned and are staring (gasps) oh no Mm -hmm. isn't that so creepy nightmare fuel everyone just silently staring back at you you're like look, i think i interrupted something i was just like just kill me now because i can't i can't handle this it's nightmarish it is nightmare the spirits of children can be seen and heard playing outside the schoolhouse like they're on their recess or something they're just like hanging around in the grass makes sense and then people will even hear the ringing the ringing of a bell like a school teacher is like hitting a bell and saying that class is back in session oh to call them back in oh my god and a lot of these hauntings sound a lot more like they are like residual hauntings rather than just like an active present poltergeist or something like that It's more of like a residual haunting because these people, everyone who's witnessed something happening at this school is saying that they're kind of just going about their day to day activity that they would have during whatever time, Mm -hmm. late 19th century, early 20th century, whatever. And they are just like repeating the same routine over and over again. So it's like this little energy imprint in time instead of. I like really intelligent haunting it's just like a memory over and over again yeah like the impression of their essence has just been left there mm-hmm. wow that's crazy that's hornbine school hornbine school <laughs> So, we're going to kind of go uh, and talk about the asinet Ledge. And many have claimed to have seen several spirits moving between the trees and believe them to be part of the indigenous tribe that fought against the Puritans in the 17th century. And so, this ledge is very, very high, and it uh, drops down to, into what is believed to be 71 feet of water. Oh. And... This is also a known location where people have sudden thoughts of suicide or growing feelings that they are about to be pushed over the ledge off into the bio-reserve. The call of the void. The call of the void, exactly. Oh, so creepy. Yeah, so some know of a story that follows a young girl who would meet her secret lover on the ledge. Uh-uh. And when he stopped showing she tragically took her life by jumping off the cliff and some say her spirit is seen lingering on the top of the cliff still waiting to this day oh so sad so girl sad. Move on. you deserve better he left you there mm-hmm yeah move on you could do so much better yeah and a man by the name of matt Moniz claimed to have seen the lady and according to an article written by Nelda Hoxie on Wisley titled Hauntings on the Assonite Ledge in Freetown State Forest. Quote, when Matt Mones was younger, he and his friends decided to hang out on top of Assonite Ledge. There is only one way out and back. Monet was the first and he saw this woman out in front of him. She looked real and solid, not a shadow or some faint spirit. He turned around to tell his friends that they weren't alone. When he turned back, she was gone. He was so concerned that he looked over the ledge to see if she had fallen, end quote. Oh, God. And no splash was heard. That's true. Yeah. And according to Andrew Lake, an expert on the Bridgewater Triangle, in his book Ghost Hunting Southern New England, he describes a time when he and Chris Belzano, who is considered one of the leading experts on Mm Pukwajee's, and members of the New England Ghost Project went looking for paranormal activity in the area. Mm. As Chris and Andrew waited for the rest of their group to arrive at the base of Assonet Ledge, they learned that the other group had an encounter, specifically Maureen, a psychic who, quote, had sensed an evil presence stalking them through the woods. When they activated their thermal imager and pointed it in the direction Maureen instructed them to, The imager screen showed a strange distortion hovering a few feet away. Maureen suddenly fell down and began to cry out as she rolled around in the ground. The team got on the ground with her and encouraged Maureen to fight whatever was attacking her. When they looked for the creepy distortion again with the thermal imager, they could not find it. As we were all about to call it a night, it happened again. Maureen Woods started to behave strangely. She threw her handbag and began growling with a twisted look on her face. She almost backed into the quarry pool. Ron and Christopher had to tackle Maureen and take her to the ground to stop her from going into the water. As they held her down, calling her back from whatever force was attacking her, Ron dislocated his fingers. While all this was happening, I, Andrew, was shooting video in infrared. As I watched the whole event unfold through the camera's view screen, I noticed a strange little light appear behind the group as they huddled around Maureen on the ground. The light lasted for 13 seconds before it disappeared. Oh, it's a long time. It is. If you're just watching, that's a long time. And I was really worried about that. When you said the hovering figure wasn't... You couldn't find it anymore. I was like, oh, no. Don't tell me it went into Maureen. Oh, it sounds like a bad. It does, especially with her... uh, having that call of the void oh god to to jump in thank god those people were there to be like no like (sighs) stop out of it maureen completely took her over that's fucking scary especially because like the girl that spirit is seen there doesn't really seem like she's malevolent in any way she kind of just sounds to be trapped there waiting for her lover so it's like what the hell evil spirit is this yeah or if it is her or if it isn't her it could be something else is there as well mm-hmm. but we're gonna move on to the king phillips cave a little bit where there have been a few reports of unexplained balls of light floating near the cave classic right you saw them over there at uh ledge you're seeing them over here at the cave it's a bridgewater triangle staple guys come on come floating on. lights floating yeah. orbs what else do you want right and some some of them refer to them as phantom fires or spook lights I love Phantom Fire. Phantom Fires. What's the name of my next my next band. Yeah, I've had more than one. <laughs> Phantom Fire. <laughs> Can't wait for the album. It's Called Spooklight. It's called Spook Light by Phantom Fires. <laughs> <laughs> like that's redundant. <laughs> so i will also hear the accompaniment of drums from an unknown from an unknown source, as well as full apparitions in this cave. And there's also a place called Profile Rock. It's about a mile north of Slab Ridge Road and is what used to be Profile Rock as it's known as Old Man on Joshua's Mountain. But sadly, on June 19th, 2019, at around 930, a call came into Freetown Police and Fire Department with reports of damage to the cliff as the park is currently closed with claims of it being unsafe. Oh, wow. So it was completely destroyed. How or why? I don't know. think anyone really knows. They just all of a sudden people probably went out for a hike and oh, saw that it was destroyed. I think part of maybe the nose. Slide, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Deteriorated? Yeah. Or ghouls? Rebelled? Mm-hmm. Or spirits, right? Wow. There is legend of Chief Massasoit of the Wampanoag Tribes. Some claim to have seen his ghost sitting atop Profile Rock with his legs crossed and his arms outstretched. And Profile Rock looks like a man's profile with a broad forehead, a heavy brow, a steep nose, and defined lips and chin. Mm -hmm. It's too bad that Profile Rock is, like, at this point, maybe gone. Yeah. Or, like, at least the profile part of it. Yeah, I mean, the the spirit of it is still there, but Mm -hmm. it's just completely in shambles if you see the pictures it's too sad it is very sad too sad what, where is he gonna perch now with his arms out He's i gotta find a new perching point maybe he can share assen ledge with the lady of the lake yeah they're gonna have to probably wrestle over that or whatever mystery thing is possessing people up there maybe it'll be like a love story and oh he'll come God. up and then she can finally be released because it'll be an eternal love together we just turned the story around. That's how I'm going to imagine this is all played out now. And I'm happy with that. And I'm going to ruin your world now because I'm about to tell you a true crime tale. Ooh, please ruin it. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's ever been so excited to hear bad news. <laughs> please ruin it. We're all here because we love to hear it. What are you talking about? You got a whole fan base that's waiting for this. Literally, they're like, thank you. Let's do this true crime stuff. <laughs> Cool, haunted places, that's nice. What about the true crime? Because you know Bridgewater Triangle has a few things going on that way. But uh, I'll tell you about one tale in specific, all right? I'm ready. On September 8th, 1978, 15 year old Mary Lou Arruda was riding her bike in her Raynham, Massachusetts neighborhood. And we've already talked about Rainham. Mm-hmm. And she's riding along and she sees her neighbor. A woman named Helena McCoy. A woman, a girl, I'm not sure. It's a neighbor. Her name's Helena. And so Helena's walking down the street. Mary Lou's riding her bike down the street. And Mary Lou rides up beside her so that they can just kind of have a little bit of chit-chat. Some small talk. You know, they're both going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. So why not? Say hi to your neighbor. Yeah. So Helena's interaction with Mary Lou was normal. It was pleasant. Mary Lou just seemed to be having the time of her life out there on her bike. and It was around 4 p.m. when they parted ways. While her interaction with Mary Lou was normal, something that Helena did notice was a little bit odd was that there was a car circling the area. It was a lime green 1976 Opel, and it had this black stripe down the side, so like what they call a racing stripe classic and it's a lime green car right so it's gonna stand out in your mind you're gonna be like everyone's gonna notice that car yeah it's like okay this car isn't usually in this neighborhood it's kind of circling around it's gonna stay with you and this car that had just kind of been driving around circling the area it was driving up and down the streets it was just prowling creepy very quiet residential area It's not like you're on like a downtown street where people are driving by all the time. Like this is specifically a residential area. And people are going to notice that car that stands out because they know all their neighbors. Exactly. And good point because a lot of people did notice this car. The man that was driving this car was a white male and he had dark curly hair and dark rimmed glasses. And he was seemingly alone in the vehicle. Shortly after Helena noticed it creeping around, other witnesses reported seeing the same car with the same man driving it, speeding through the streets and leaving the area. This time, however, the witnesses reported something large, maybe a person, was in the passenger seat. Okay. Interesting. So at around 4.30 p.m., which would have been half an hour after Mary Lou was last seen by Helena chit-chatting, a neighborhood boy found Mary Lou's bike lying abandoned on the side of the road. Oh, no. And there was no sign of Mary Lou. Of course not. And it was totally weird for her to just leave her bike on the side of the road. While she's, like, pretty close to home, it's still strange. Like, it's not like a kid that leaves their bike. She's 15. Like yeah. She wouldn't just abandon her bike there. So this neighborhood boy, he knew it was Mary Lou's bike. I'm not sure if it's because... There was like her name on it or something or I've read that it's a bright orange bike. So I think maybe it was very specific to Mary Lou. Mm, noticeable. Yeah. So he had known that it was hers and he kind of kept an eye on it to see if she would come and get it or something because it is weird that she's laying there. Mm-hmm. But it was around 5 p.m. at this point. And so it's been half an hour since he's noticed that the bike has just been sitting there and it's still sitting there. So he went to Mary Lou's house to tell her that her bike was lying on the side of the road yeah but mary lou isn't home and it's her mom joanne that answers the door and so when the boy is like yo mary lou's bike is just lying on the side of the road you should go and get it joanne panics because she's like what the hell do you mean mary lou's not with the bike she's nowhere around yeah why is her bike just laying there so her like i'm saying like her daughter would not have just ditched the bike And just taken off. like That's so out of character for Mary Lou. So Joanne is freaked out. She immediately calls the police. And to their credit. They do show up very quickly. And they speak with Joanne. They take her statement about. Where her daughter was was supposed to be. Where she's going. How she's just vanished. They go out into the area. Where her bike was. And kind of investigated it a bit. Spoke to a bunch of witnesses in the area. And they take a missing person report from Joanne. So this is how we know that a bunch of neighbors and people in this neighborhood had seen this car. It's yeah. They're like, well, it's a very specific car. And we totally saw that thing. Either more um, in like the minutes pre- preceding 4 p.m. People mm-hmm. had seen it prowling. And then after 4 p.m. is when witnesses said they saw a car speeding away wow yeah and for it just to be abandoned like that on the side of the road the bike mm-hmm. like at 15 that's your like main mode of transportation for exactly. yourself and then it's the 70s too so everyone's that's... using bikes so for it to just be on the side of the road discarded but at least this kid like you know he paid attention I know. like he is a hero this kid exactly watching out for his neighbors like hmm little neighbor, i'm just picturing this small little neighborhood boy like the patrol like uh oh abandoned bicycle they give him catalog that a community vest where it's like the community (laughs) watch vest yeah that's so true he was on the ball though he was and he's like i know that's mary's bike and i also know where mary lou lives and i'm going to say to her going to her house to say hey your bike is there you might want to get it so yeah this kid's on the ball Mm mm-hmm and that uh, he actually did something about it, too. Exactly. It feels like, so far, people are on the ball. I mean, the neighbors are noticing a weird mm-hmm. car. This kid is noticing the bike. Uh, the police are actually showing up pretty quickly and Tight taking community. it seriously. <clears throat> For sure. Very tight-knit. So, like I had said, the police had, sh- had shown up and they were kind of investigating this area where the bike was left. So, they are examining the scene and the police find a couple of clues that, confirmed she was likely abducted and put inside of a vehicle. So next to where the bike was found, there was a tread mark, like a tire track that Mm -hmm. was left on the road like an acceleration mark as if someone had sped away and like Mm -hmm. um, spun the tires. Yeah, And the, the track characteristics suggested that the tire had an abnormal tread wear pattern. So it's like fingerprints or shoe, like shoe prints, footprints. Okay. Like it's very unique and it's going to be just as beneficial if they take photos of that. So that's a really good clue to have. And then nearby in the middle of the road, officers had found a Benson and Hedges cigarette butt. So they're like, all right, our perp Mm -hmm. has a, at least one of their tires has a very unique tread pattern and they smoke Benson and Hedges. And the neighbors all saw this one car. Exactly. That has now disappeared. Lime green Opel. I think you say Opel. It's not Opal. I think it's Opel. But it's lime green, okay? It's very specific. So for the next three days, police, locals, and canines searched the area where Mary Lou had been last seen. And they're looking for any more clues. They're hoping that they can find her, anything like that. On September 9th, so that's the day after she vanished, Police developed photographs of the tire tracks found near the bike. And then on September 10th, they published a wanted poster containing a composite sketch of the driver and the green car. Because the eyewitnesses had seen this car and they had all said, We saw this white guy, curly hair, dark ribbed glasses. Pedo. Creep. <laughs> Real. Prowler. And you said he had curly dark hair, curly dark hair, and thick dark rimmed glasses. Possibly a wig. Um, no, actually, this is this is legit seventies hair. Oh my, yep, it's got some thick curls. Classic pedo. (laughs) Oh shit! I just laughed so hard I broke my hair clip. (laughs) Damn, son. Okay. Oh no, all my curly hair. (laughs) Oh no. So yeah. All all these witnesses are actually so helpful because they're like, we know exactly what the car looked like. Let, let us tell you. You can draw it. We know exactly what this man looked like. We'll tell you. Let's draw it. And they do. And they release the sketch to the public. And someone who saw this sketch believed that they recognized the man. So on September 13th, the police received a photo and information on a man named James Cater. Okay. Kudos to whoever sent this information in. Yes, thank you. Also he's like probably a freak. So uh really happy to send you this information. Yeah. Now on September 19th, 1978, 32-year-old Cater, I'm just gonna call him Cater, (laughs) his attorney, and his 18-year-old wife. Oh God. Met with the police at the Rainem police station so i know that like 18 you're an adult whatever but like when you're 18 and you're 32 what the fuck do you have in common like i i it's just so <sighs> dumbfounded like about how these people could try and justify that and it's like you just you go after like the quote-unquote like innocence mm-hmm. of a woman or a person innocence for sure because they're gonna be like he's 32 he's- so like well-traveled and well-versed and like experiencing things so cool yeah the 32 year old guys like yeah she's an 18 man it's fucking sick i was gonna say something (laughs) i'm not gonna say it never mind okay (laughs) oh my god (laughs) (coughs) oh my god I just choked because I could see the wheels turning in your head, and you started to do a gesture where you were like, I'm going to do it, and then you're like, no, I can't do no, it. No, no. <laughs> it's best I don't. <laughs> so, yeah, 32-year-old Cater, his attorney, and his 18-year-old wife, they go to the police station on September 19th. So that's like um 11 days after uh, Mary Lou has gone missing. Oh, okay. 11 days and the composite sketch and everything that had led to the tip and the photo and the information about james cater came in at september 13th so it's about like a week prior but he wasn't brought in until this point because on september 9th so the day after mary lee goes missing he married his wife so they're fiance's up until the day after mary lee went missing and, and now he's married his eighteen year old. No, and it was on September ninth that he got married. And so he wasn't in town because they went on a two week honeymoon. Uh, so that's convenient. why it took him until September nineteenth to be brought in for questioning. I went to Canada too, and it didn't say where. It just said two week honeymoon in Canada. Probably Niagara. Yeah, you're so right. Right? That's of course. Where everyone kinda tours is Niagara. Especially on the east coast. Yeah. You're so right. Let's just say it was Niagara Falls, and I hope it was fun for her and horrible for him. We're changing history, guys. <laughs> right? Yeah, it was Niagara Falls, totally. Um, but like we don't know that, but it makes sense. Okay. So the police noted when the cater came in that his appearance was incredibly consistent with the composite sketch, and it's the '70s, so you're just fucking hacking darts at in that interrogation room. <laughs> what do you think he was smoking? What do I think he was smoking? It was Benson and Hedges. Oh, okay. Same butt that was found in the middle of the street near those tire tracks. Of course it was. So Cater gave the police permission to search his car. A bright green 1976 Opel with a black <sighs> racing stripe down the side. He made it so easy. For real. And kudos to whoever turned this guy. Yeah. So the right front tire tread had unusual characteristics. Just like the tire track found near Mary's bike. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. eh? Who even saw this coming? Who would have known? (laughs) When they searched inside the car, they saw wedding gifts, two cartons of Benson and Hedges cigarettes, and two pairs of dark-rimmed glasses in the glove compartment. In the trunk, under some luggage, they found two newspapers from September 10th. One was the Boston Globe, and the other was the Boston Herald, and each newspaper was open to articles about the disappearance of Mary Lou Arruda. Wow. Like, could this be any more fucking I think that they're obviously very fucking stupid. (laughs) Right. right? But at the same time, this would be a perfect fucking plant. That is so true. It's like two on the nose. Right? Like, with the sunglasses, it's easy enough to get a wig that matches his pedo hair right like <laughs> like his whole vibe he's probably wearing a freaking track suit or something too oh god you're so right <laughs> like if you're driving a lime green bright car with a black stripe a racing stripe a racing stripe he's got a ferrari jacket. does he have a mustache too um i'm trying to think of pictures of him and i think he was clean shaven for that picture yeah like he could he could have shaved before he was taken in for questioning what try, trying to alter his uh appearance so they wouldn't recognize it yeah he's got a he's clean shaven he's got a butt chin little little double chin there he's got a butt chin butt chin you know, like a little crack and then mm-hmm. it's, it's it's not cool like superman because he's double cool. chin it's kind of yeah. got a double chin you know it's a little saggy but it happens to the best of us <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point sounds a little bit too perfect Could right be a plant Especially with the multiple pairs of glasses and like everything that's like magically in the car, mm-hmm. like who's to say maybe you know your friend took it for a spin, threw on a wig. Why don't I keep telling you the story and we'll see if you feel? Oh, I'm so. excited. I think your cha- I think your mind might change. Oh, okay. All right, change it for me. So, oh, you know they're looking in this car and they're like, "What the fuck? All this stuff is like right on the nose," and I mean it is incredibly suspicious. So the police photographed cater and the tires and they interrogated him and they were mainly asking about his whereabouts between 4 p.m and 6 p.m on september 8th 1978 the day that mary lee was ab- abducted likely mm-hmm. so cater said that he had picked up his clothes from the cleaners at 3 45 p.m and dropped them off at home and then around 4 15 p.m he stopped at a local restaurant called friendlies where he regularly went and he just got his usual sandwich and coffee And then around 4.45 p.m. after he's done eating his sandwich and drinking his coffee, he went to a local store called Bradley's to purchase a gift for his wife. He then washed his car at a nearby gas station, paid a short visit to the donut shop where he worked at 6.15 p.m., and then he went home. So he's got a seemingly airtight put-together alibi for where he was that day, even though that would have been like two weeks ago at this point. He's like, I know exactly where I was at what time. And probably why his car is so freaking clean. Yeah. And apparently he like went to the car wash that day multiple times. Which is bizarre. Like who does that? And if you are, what are you hauling, hey? If, you, uh-huh. if you're if you the type of person that goes multiple times. How are you doing? You got a bunch of like dirt and sand. Yeah, it's not like and... it's a big pickup truck and you're like a farmer or something. Always out in the field. Like you're in your lime green little show car. Like, come on. Yeah, well, you're, you're not like, hauling anything except for bodies. <gasps> presumptive but correct <laughs> so of course police are like cool cool thanks for the alibi we're obviously going to double check it so they do they're like let's go to these places let's see if he was at Friendly's. let's see if he was at bradley's let's see if he went to the donut shop all of that and they learned that this alibi was off he did not go to Friendly's that day he quote couldn't have purchased anything at bradley's before 6 40 that evening End quote. I don't know what that means. I don't know if they saw receipt records, purchases, or if maybe Friendlies wasn't open until later. I have no idea. But the police were able to confirm that it was impossible that he went to the store at that time. Fair. And, quote, most likely paid a short visit to his workplace at approximately 7 p.m. instead of 6.15 p.m. So, later, than he said. Lies. All lies. And even then, most likely, like, they can't positively confirm that he did go in there on that day. Because... If he did in that moment, if it was September 8th, you'd be like, oh, like, I don't know. He's just here. Whatever. He works here. Maybe he stopped in. But, like, a couple of weeks later, you're not going to really remember yeah. if he was in for a visit or not. Because you'd be like, I don't know. It wasn't even important at the time. Um, cal- like, cataloging every time an employee comes in. Yeah. Especially on their days off. Mm-hmm. Like, plus, you could set, like, a president for how he shows up all the time on those days so it's not out of the blue exactly. if he does. Yeah, so true. So Cater also missed a 5.30 p.m. appointment on the day that Mary Lou had gone missing. And he was witnessed by uh by witnesses. That's terrible writing. He's witnessed by witnesses <laughs> <laughs> driving his green Opel at 4 p.m. in Mary Lou's neighborhood. And then by more witnesses around 4.30. P.M. in the immediate vicinity of Freetown State Forest, which is important. Yeah. It's also important to know that Cater was not a good guy. Oh no, really? (laughs) This is alarming and shocking. Wow. Oh. On February 6th, 1969, Cater pled guilty to indictments of assault with intent to rape, assault and battery by means of a dangerous weapon, and kidnapping after abducting and attacking a 13-year-old girl named Jacqueline. So, another girl. Mm-hmm. He has a history. Mm-hmm. So, on June twenty-second, 1968, between 1.30 and 2.30 p.m., Jacqueline was walking her bike home on a quiet street in North Andover when she noticed that a small, unfamiliar, light blue car had stopped in front of her. It was the same car that... That had passed by her several times earlier that afternoon. Stalking her. So different car, but exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Creep and prowl in this neighborhood following this girl on a bike. Girls on bikes obviously is targets. Yeah, apparently that really does it for this freak. So she looks and she sees that it's the car, but she's certain was already following her all day. And then she sees that the driver's side door is open. But the engine is still running. Then she sees that Cater is standing in the middle of the street, just staring at her. That's so creepy. No. So they kind of had that moment of like, uh, what the fuck? And then Cater walks towards her, quietly, but very politely asks her for directions. He's looking for like a nearby house or something. So as Jacqueline turns and points in the direction that he should go, Takes her eyes off of him for a second. He quickly grabs her by covering her mouth and her nose with his hand. As Jacqueline is struggling to get away, she drops her bike and she sees that Cater is holding an iron bar in his hand. Oh, wow. He quickly forced her into the car, putting her on the floor underneath the passenger side dashboard. Got in his driver's seat, put the car in reverse back down the street. And turned around at an intersection, and he was out of there, sped off through those neighborhood streets. So fast. It happened so Mm -hmm. fast. Very fast. So driving incredibly fast, speeding down the roads, they traveled for about 30 minutes, and the last few minutes of which they were driving in a forested area. Cater finally stopped the car, pulled Jacqueline out, and walked her further into the woods. He hit her on the back of the head of the iron bar while forcing her to kneel at a stream. And as Cater tried to force her face into the water, she fought back. She grabbed his glasses from his face in the process and she threw them off to the side. Mm-hmm. And as he's going to retrieve his glasses, she tries to flee. But he caught up to her and he grabbed her and he forced her back into the car. So again, he drove them deeper into the forest parked walked jacqueline out of the car and further into the woods but this time he forced her to stand against a tree instead of kneeling at a stream Mm -hmm. so as she is standing against a tree he uses strips of torn bed sheet and he ties jacqueline's hands ankles and torso around the tree okay so she is basically attached to this tree Mm -hmm. immobile yep so after roughly 20 minutes of just pacing back and forth and watching her, Cater went behind Jacqueline, pulled the last strip of bedsheet very tight against her neck before moving in front of her to strangle her with his hands. And he does this until she's unconscious. Wow. Now she wakes up. I don't know if he thought she was dead, but she does wake up and she's alone. And she's slumped over. And she's still bound to the tree. But miraculously, she managed to untie herself and she ran out of that forest until she found help. Good for her. So after she was found, she was taken home. And then I assume her parents took her to the hospital. Mm -hmm. She did go. And then she was taken to the police department where she gives this whole story about what happened to her. Detailed statement of it. Mm hmm. And then Jacqueline identified Cater as her attacker and abductor. And as we know, he pled guilty to these charges against him. And he had spent nearly a decade in prison for this crime. Good. But, I mean, he's now in police custody being questioned about Mary Lou's disappearance. Mm-hmm. So, so, I'm good at him. Yeah, on to the next one, eh? Yeah. So at the point that he's interviewed by police as a person of interest in Mary Lou's disappearance, he'd been out of prison since January 1976. So just a little bit more than two and a half years. Okay. And he talks about how he's like been rebuilding his life. You know, he's married now. He's a better man, all of that. So he might have done those horrible things to Jacqueline, but he would never do that again to anybody else. He's learned his lesson. He's a new man. <laughs> While he was released from his interrogation, he was never far from the investigator's mind because on November 11th, 1978, a little over two months after Mary Lou had vanished, her body was found. And when she was found, she was severely decomposed, fully clothed, and she was tied to a tree in Freetown State Forest. Oh, wow. Sound familiar? Yep. A pattern. Her cause of death was strangulation by ligature um, or positional asphyxia. So a pathologist later testified that Mary Lou was tied to the tree while she was alive and in a standing position. But once she became unconscious, the weight of her head against the ligature around her neck caused her to suffocate. Okay. So the, the pathologist also believed that Mary Lou died the same day that she disappeared. But that means that she was out there for over two months, just tied to a tree. Well, if she was found severely decomposed, then he yeah. probably brought her quite deep. And I'm pretty sure she was found by, like, little kids that were, like, out there having fun and dirt biking or something. Oh, my God. Imagine seeing that. Horrifying. So, yeah, when it, when it says strangulation by ligature or positional asphyxia, I think positional asphyxia is just, like, standing against the tree, having her head down suffocated on the ligatures that were around her neck on november 28 1978 32 year old cater was indicted for the kidnapping and murder of mary lou aruda the reasons were basically that his alibi for the day that mary lou vanished wasn't reliable because they had looked into it and they were like um buddy this doesn't add up liar liar pants on fire and then there was the unusual tire mark at the scene, which matched the unusual wear of his tire. They were like, okay, that's also undeniable. Clue number two. And then there's the Benson and Hedges cigarettes. Clue number three. Very circumstantial, but still. The newspapers in his trunk. The fact that the crimes against Mary Lou were strikingly similar to the crimes he committed against Jacqueline. Exactly the same. Pretty much, yeah. And then... The fact that his car was seen near Freetown State Forest and around the area of where Mary Lou had lived and was taken from. Well, no one could miss that. Mm -mm. And then this part is so sad and like eerie. One of the witnesses that saw the green car fly down the street was Joanne, which is Mary Lou's mother. Really? And because it was flying down the street, and at the time that she saw the car, it was likely that Mary Lou was inside the car. Oh my god! And probably so. Mary Lou was being driven past her own house. Oh, wow. And I was reading that, and I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" That's so cruel. That is a big like fuck you to that family. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Especially since he's been stalking her for how long? Like She's prowling the streets, looking at her, mm-hmm. like all like it sounds like a good portion of that afternoon of him just creeping around Mm -hmm, waiting for his opportunity so at trial cater denied having any responsibility in the disappearance and death of mary lou Aruda. something he's always maintained he's always been like nope i didn't do it in 1979 cater was convicted of the abduction and murder of mary lou Aruda. over the years there's been many appeals Overturned verdicts, retrials, mistrials, convictions of guilt again, and then more appeals—a mess. And I will not get into all of that. Long and dragged out, completely. But finally, in 1996, Cato was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for good. So finally. it's like even though you were originally sentenced in 1979, and it's now 1996. It's done. You're going to prison. No parole. You're guilty. Yeah. And then, of course, he appealed because that's what he does. But the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the conviction in 2000. And that was it. Stuck in there. Good. You're in prison. And then on January 23rd, 2016, he died of cancer. So (sighs) he's, he's done. Hope the cancer was painful. I hope so, too. Everyone else, especially from random Massachusetts, they're just like... Fuck that guy. I hope he rots in hell. Mm-hmm. For sure. He terrorized this this town. And he did. Like this Mary Lou's case has, to this day, is still very present in the minds of people in random. Like they don't forget. And her family, especially with all of the appeals and the retrials and all of that, like that means they were dragged through all of this mm-hmm. for the for decades. Yeah. So that must have been so hard. But. The fact that this community was strong enough to come together and be like, no, we care about the kids that are going missing. Mm-hmm. We care about making sure that it's safe here. And if anyone has seen anything, we're going to say something. Yeah, that's so important. Mm-hmm. Because and, they got to get that information out there. Yeah, that's very special. And you just hope any community that you're a part of or that you live in is like that. Exactly. So, of course, Mary Lou's family. Like, they love her and they miss her very dearly. And Mary had a sister. And a brother and loving parents. She was and still is loved and remembered by the people of Rainham. There is actually a soccer field named after her. There's a street named after her. A police plaque. And there's even a fingerprinting program named after her. Oh, wow. So this town holds her very close. Holds the tragedy very close and wants to really honor Mm -hmm. the sacrifice that happened there. And then even though it's been almost 45 years, people still say Mary Lou's name. They remember her story and the lovely girl that she was. Like, she was a cheerleader and she was like one of the best members of the track team. Like, this girl had potential and was loved. And to this day, locals and visitors of Raynham leave flowers at Mary Lou's grave. Oh, wow. that's that's so sweet of them. So that is a little true crime tale for you, yeah. And yeah, just rest in peace, Mary Lou. People don't forget you, yeah. The whole community seems like they care. yeah, you can't. there's no denying what cater did there. two cases of women in the Freetown State Forest yeah. bound to a tree. You're guilty exactly. Well, we're also going to take a little bit of a turn. And we're going to talk about some Bigfoot encounters. Are we going to talk about Bigfoot Just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's going to be weird. I feel like Bigfoot is like a classic one. We've never talked about Bigfoot. No, we haven't. And I'll probably dive in deeper on another episode. But for now, we're just going to talk about the sightings that happened in Bridgewater Triangle. Let's do it. So... Sightings were first reported in the 1970s when the armed police, along with a pack of dogs, tracked down what witnesses claimed to be a bear, but they were unable to locate it. And in April of 1970, more reports came into police about a creature that was very large and walking upright, covered in hair. It was me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I thought it looked familiar in the pictures. That smell uh, smells about right. Well, apparently, Bigfoot's too <laughs> stink like rotten garbage. Really? Yeah. Like some the of pigeon them do. that attacked me. Like, oh my God, the friggin' pigeon. I was attacked by a pigeon, guys, and it smelled like sour garbage. It was horrible. And then Kobe came to the rescue. Yeah, my cat saved me. It was amazing. Anyway, this is about Bigfoot. Yes. Um. So. <laughs> At this time, a flood of reports had come in from residents uh, and farmers about finding mutilated farm animals. Mm. And some people reported seeing this creature running and causing mischief in the backyards and neighboring woods. What is with the mischief? Everything in the Bridgewater Triangle is a menacing, mischievous mister. Well, the paranormal vortex maybe is just amping them up. You're right. Right? Just letting loose out here. They're wild and out here in Massachusetts. Wild and causing a ruckus. Ruckus and random. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, police determined to are determined to capture this alleged creature. An officer posted up in his patrol car when suddenly the entire rear end of the car lifted into the air. Mm -mm. And he claims that when he, quote, spun the, the car around and when he flashed his light, his searchlight, he saw something that looked like a huge bipedal bear running away between the houses end quote i just don't even know what to make of that my mind went into like eight different directions i know like the whole back end of the car i was like first i was like wouldn't you know if it was a bear or not like you'd be like my eyes are playing tricks on me that has to be a bear and then my mind also went to like those moms whose kid is like hit by a car and they all of a sudden get like superhero strength and could pick the car up and right save their kid and then i was like that's irrelevant this is bigfoot but that's just some places my mind went well and the (laughs) fact that the car was like picked up and not like rammed into (laughs) so there was no damage to reported of the car and you would know like you would know if you're We're being lifted up versus being catapulted forward. Exactly. You would know the difference. He could still drive his car. I've been rear-ended really hard, and like it's obvious that you were just hit from behind. Yeah. Never been in a vehicle. Sorry, that's not it. I've been rear-ended real hard. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. That's a story for a different podcast. (laughs) But I've never been in a car that's lifted up, but I feel like you would know the difference. Yeah. I think you would know the difference. And. A few days later, there was a report of tracks being found after seeing a seven-foot-tall creature run into the woods. Absolutely not. In Raynham, during 1973 to 1974... An overnight security guard at the Raynham dog track reported, quote, a series of horrible screams and screeches that frightened him and upset the dogs. Huge footprints, 15 to 18 inches long, were discovered in the snow south of Raynham, end quote. If my dogs are scared, then I'm terrified. Yeah, you trust the animals around you. Yeah, the animals around you are freaking out. Something terrible is around. It smells like garbage and has 18 inch feet. Just get out of there. Fucking run. Take those doggos and go and have a cuddle party somewhere else. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> get matching PJs, get all snuggly. Hell yeah. Safe inside. And there were also like many more reported sightings of this seven foot tall creature around Elm Street and Bridge Street and Raynham. Elm in Street, get real. Yep, Creepy Elm Street. As if. Yep, That's on horrifying. many separate occasions. And in 1977, in Egawam, near Springfield, footprints were found in the snow with police believing it to be the hoax. Mm. And in July 13th, 1979, residents of Bridgewater Triangle hear a sound they attribute to the vocalization of Bigfoot, just Um, screeching and screaming, roaring. The sounds are always the creepiest. It's one thing to like, see a footprint, you know? Yeah. Like, whoa that's creepy you can pretend it didn't happen like i don't know it could be a hoax could be whatever mm-hmm. when you hear a sound that is like bone chilling and you cannot attribute it to anything you know Yep. that is a nightmare like when that chill just goes right up your spine yeah. and your hair just stands on end yeah You're like, like that's either a bigfoot or a banshee is coming to get me you know that if you encounter that you will die <laughs> i would think so right <laughs> I'm sure there's some people out there that would be like, I can take it. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Fuck it go. You want to shriek at me? I'll get it right. I'll get you right back. Let's fucking go. That wasn't even a Boston accent. I don't even know what kind of accent that was. It was just a dude. It was just a dude. <laughs> it was just a dude. <laughs> that was just a dude. <laughs> so in July 2009, a report came in from a motorist in the Freetown area in which Bigfoot had been sighted at night. Oh no, the Freetown area again? Yep i mean there's a big forest there it's the perfect place for him yeah exactly so lots of a few reports within the bridgewater triangle but you know we'll get into bigfoot on another episode Yeah, that will be really cool to just dive right into bigfoot as a whole you know get mm-hmm. to know him and his big feet yeah his smelly ass maybe sasquatch his cousin or the cousin yeti wait a sasquatch and a bigfoot aren't the same thing no And then there's also the swamp ape as well. But we got to get into it in another episode. I have so many questions. I know. I'm going to leave you hanging there. I'm not going to give you any more information. So what am I supposed to do now? Just change the topic? Just, yeah, change the topic (laughs) and wait for uh, a new episode on on what uh, the differences are. Okay, fine. My story isn't as cool as a Bigfoot or a Swamp Ape or a fucking Sasquatch, which I all thought was all the same thing. Actually, I've never even heard the term Swamp Ape till now. Florida. But that's just a hairy man. <laughs> a hairy wet man coming out of the swamp. <laughs> like, oh, a Swamp Amp. And a Swamp Amp? <laughs> a Swamp Amp. Jesus. Swamp Ape. Okay, this is a sign for me to drop the topic. I'm going to switch it up. Okay. I've told you some haunted places. I've told you a true crime tale. Now I'm going to tell you a little dark history. tale. So I'm going to tell you about the Taunton State Hospital. Formerly known as the State Lunatic Hospital at Taunton. I'm excited. So, this was the second quote insane asylum in Massachusetts. It was built in 1853 to relieve the State Lunatic Hospital at Worcester, which had been built 20 years earlier but was already overcrowded, like severely overcrowded. Oh, I'm sure. So, they were like, okay, let's build another one, and that is Taunton State. So, there was this beautiful 154-acre lot, basically, along the Mill River in Taunton. And Taunton is, like, basically, like, the center of the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm -hmm. And this area along the river was selected in part because the river acted as a natural barrier, separating the asylum from further growth of the town. (laughs) So even though institutions like this, the like insane asylums, mm-hmm. were sort of symbolizing this turn in how people felt and thought about the mentally ill, um, it they still wanted it to be like <laughs> isolated, yeah, from the town. So they're like, yeah, let's have institutions to care for these people, but like make sure it's like away from us. Put the crazy people <laughs> behind the trees so no one the can trees see them. And- protected by the river there would eventually be more than 40 build- buildings f- that are a part of the lunatic hospital wow 40 eh yeah like anything you can think of a theater bakery like it was its own little town basically wow and the state lunatic hospital featured modern amenities so even though it was built in 1853 there was still running water sewage system like it was a pretty sweet place Sounds like a good retirement community, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) So prominent New England architect Elbridge Boyden designed the hospital. And it was the fifth state hospital to be built on the standardized asylum plan of Thomas Kirkbride's plan. And Thomas Kirkbride is somebody that we talked a lot about in our Haunted Places of West Virginia episode, which was episode 27. So I won't get too much into him. You want to recap on that make sure you listen to episode 27 but basically when you're talking about a standardized asylum plan that just means that you believe in this building that has like quote curative power so the architect is starting the architecture is starting with like an ad- administrative building a main operating point and then wings that like branch off Okay. And the intention is to have like maximum amount of sunlight and fresh air in each ward and that would be quote curative power. Okay. So that's the idea when it comes to Thomas Kirkbride's plan. So sunlight cures. Sunlight, fresh air, you know, all that.
1: Get out. Get well, out well, there in
0: nice. nature. I... They're not trying to hide them. Right. <laughs> sort of sort of <laughs> like, yeah, put them behind the river but make sure they have sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> So the administrative building at Taunton was three stories tall. And on top, there was this dome that offered a gorgeous panoramic view of the neighboring villages and nature. And I mean, that's really beautiful and nice. But then the patients are just like, wow, look at all of this life that I'm banished from. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> so it's like pretty, but also the patients were probably like, wow, I want to be there. <laughs> the first patient was admitted on April 7th, 1854. But the patient population quickly grew to 250 people in the first eight weeks. And then by 1873, the number had doubled. Wow. People just dropping off their family members. Exactly. So to accommodate the overcrowding, expansion projects occurred throughout 1906 to enlarge the facility. And then another expansion project occurred in the 1930s. And so they were trying to, like, make it big and feasible and comfortable to hold all of these people that were there and there was also various forms of entertainment available for the patients the place had baseball games picnics book donation programs lectures dances like they were trying to make this at least as normal as possible a lot of activities for them to do oh, and different yeah. things to keep them entertained that's really good for sure tons of stuff and then journalists and other community members were even welcomed in to the hospital. And this was in an attempt to like do away with old-time prejudices and views on the mentally ill. So they were trying That's to like, good. change the view of mentally ill people. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's very nice. Very thoughtful. But despite these like good intentions of you know curative power and allowing journalists in and whatever the asylum isn't a place that most people want to go yeah. they don't want to have to go to an asylum and especially because we know nowadays that causes for commitment were usually arbitrary yeah so here is a long list of arbitrary reasons promiscuity being deemed wild or unruly, being an unwanted child and or senior, being outspoken or unorthodox in one's religious or political views, anxiety, depression, not getting along with your family, homosexuality, being a woman who was viewed as too assertive, hyperactivity, birth defects, Alzheimer's, syphilis, not speaking English, poor social skills, being isolative, introverted or antisocial, Masturbation and loss of friends and loss of interest in housework. Wow, that is quite the list. And that's like, if that's the list, then I would have been admitted over and over and over again. (laughs) That is ridiculous that all those reasons were reasons that you could get just thrown in there Mm -hmm. and dropped off, never to be seen again. Exactly. It's just like basically, you're a problem or an inconvenience to me, and goodbye. So like all of those are arbitrary reasons yeah well no wonder that um a lot of uh there's not a lot of reports of a lot of kids being sick or born with defects or whatever because they just dropped them all off in the psychic ward they were just like ugh don't want to deal with them so you don't see them in society is this thing gonna be a a burden or like maybe a small handful Uh, it's not perfect get rid of it drop it off the lunatic asylum oh my gosh Now, while those reasons are arbitrary, of course, there are patients who are admitted to the hospital for good reasons. I know there's there's some people in the Taunton lunatic asylum that should probably be there. Yeah. For example, 23 year old Walter H. Prey was committed to the asylum for the murder of a boy named Vernon Fisher. An article in the Fall River Daily News from November 22nd, 1889 reads, quote, Walter H. Prey of Weymouth, the demented youth who murdered the little fisher boy yesterday by burying him alive, was in court at Quincy this morning and was held for the grand jury. Prey does not appear to realize the gravity of the offense. End quote. He buried him alive? He buried a boy alive. Oh my god, that would have been terrifying. Like, to go through something like that, like, knowing you're going to die, like, oh my it gets worse. Oh, I'm sure it does. Fall River Daily News reported again on December sixth, eighteen eighty-nine, stating Prey was indicted for murdering three year old Fisher. So this boy wasn't even just a boy, he was three. Was three years old. Wow. And this article said, quote, Prey dug a hole in the ground and placing the child in the excavation covered it over with earth, smothering him to death. Wow. Evil person. Twenty three year old murders a three year old boy a baby a baby a three-year-old is a baby and then the people's press wrote an article on february 27th 1890 titled peculiar 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 freak of an insane man that was so much for me to say but that's because that's a very extra title it's like okay calm down people we got there we got there it says quote there was a lunacy inquiry Tuesday before Judge devins in the Supreme Court in the case of William, William, Walter. Why did I write William? Is William case, or is it Walter? In the case of Walter H. Prey. <laughs> witnesses of the medical profession testified that Prey was deficient in inte- intelligence and cerebral development. The prisoner had told several doctors he killed the child because he liked to go to funerals. And because the victim's elder brother had tormented him, Judge Devins ordered prey taken to the Taunton Lunatic Hospital. End quote. Wow. So this crazed man was like, well, this kid's older brother was kind of a dick and I just like to go to funerals. So I literally killed a three-year-old boy for that. What kind of fetish is having to go to a, like a funeral? Right! Oh my. He's like, I love funerals kill the boy well be glad that he's not the what mortician oh god yeah imagine the fucked up shit you would do then i don't even want to know uh technician or mortician or autopsy technician none of that shit i don't want to know well there's a reason why that uh morticians are usually women (laughs) you really yeah it's an actual fact but that's monstrous <laughs> men are monstrous oh, i know but the fact that it's like oh we gotta make sure that we got a women woman in here because I oh, can't trust she can actually you know control herself and doesn't have fucked up fetishes oh god that's so gross i was trying to i was just listening to a podcast and i can't remember what it was but it was about a man that worked as a some sort of custodian or janitor or something in a hospital and he um violated like hundreds of dead bodies in the morgue i think it was an episode of dark topic maybe but i don't remember that's crazy oh it'll come to me but Yeah, so this guy just like to kill kids for going, so he go to funerals. And there was a another quote lunatic sentenced to the asylum. Okay. And the Daily Item wrote an article on June sixth, nineteen o eight. Quote: Anthony Santo, a lad of fourteen, startled chief of police Fred S. Sackett of Norwood. At the close of the session of the Northern Norfolk District Court today, when he declared that he killed his two cousins, James and Frank Marino, in Brooklyn, New York, last March. He said he buried the body of Frank in the woods. He murdered the two boys, he said, by hitting them on the head with stones. Young Santo told the chief of police that he lived at present with a cousin, Anthony Santo, at Cottage Street, East Boston. He said he had been in Boston about a month and had been employed as a water boy on the Norwood sewer. There have been several bicycle thefts about Norwood recently and Santo was brought into court today for examination in connection with the thefts. The session of court had been closed and the chief and several newspaper men were talking with the lad in the courtroom when he suddenly said that he had wanted to tell them something. He said that he took his cousins for a long walk through the woods and when they were not looking, he struck both of them over the head with large stones. He was unable to remember what became of the body of James Marino. Santo cannot fix the exact date of the alleged crime, but says it was about March 1st. The boy was immediately locked up to await investigation. Chief of Police Sackett communicated at once with the Brooklyn police. Santo's father was brought to the police station and questioned regarding the boy's confession, The the father says that he knows of a family named Marino who lives in Brooklyn, but does not know whether they have children. Chief Sackett talked with the Brooklyn police over the telephone, and a thorough investigation is being made. Wow. So a 14-year-old boy is like, I murdered my two cousins. And everyone is like, what the fuck? Did he actually do it? Do this or not? And his dad is like, man... (laughs) I think I know some Marinos, but I don't know if they have kids. So this kid's in custody and the police are like trying to figure out, is this kid well or no? Is he a liar? Is he a murderer? What the fuck is going on? Well, it seems like he's claiming that he's also murdered cousins, but no one can figure out which cousins he's talking about. Yeah, he's so... like, do these cousins even exist? Yeah. Does it seem like they do? So did he just murder just two random boys and called them cousins? Or... Yeah, exactly. Wow. So Anthony's being held in custody, basically, because they're like, we got to talk to Brooklyn and see if there's two kids that are dead. While he's in custody, he admits the next day to murdering a third person. Wow. a, A girl named Louise Stala. The Boston Globe on June 7th, 1908 reported in an article, quote, Chief Sackett started back to Norwood with the boy, and it was while he was waiting in Memorial Square for a Norwood Electric that the first mention was made of the Stala murder, while the Globe representative was questioning him in regard to his Brooklyn murders. Suddenly, in the midst of a story of the killing of the Merino boys, he said, Yes, I saw a little girl and I threw stones at her too. She was picking flowers. No, I did not hurt her. This statement he stuck to until he was in the Norwood lockup. There he was questioned at length and told his story of the triple murder in detail. One Monday, I was walking toward the Boston line. I saw a little girl on the hill near the railroad track picking flowers. I went to where she was. There was some trees and some tall grass there. She was dressed in blue and had blue flowers in her hand. I had one of my spells and threw stones at her. The first one did not hit her because she jumped. The second hit her and she fell. I thought she was dead, and I started away, but returned, and saw she was not dead, as her head moved and her eyes rolled. I stayed there a while, and then went out onto the railroad track and walked back to Norwood. I love the voice! (laughs) It dragged me in. (sighs) At the conclusion of his story, Chief Sackett took the boy to Dedham and had a talk with Chief of Police William H. Drugin of Dedham and State Officer John H. Scott. The boy has been taken to the scene of the crime to see what he would say or do. He pointed out several places where he said the girl fell, but he would not say much more about the case. He was again questioned at the police headquarters and then taken to Dedham lockup where he is held to await further examination by the police. I love that voice too. <laughs> oh my God. Getting so into character. I'm already reading a quote. So I'm like, ah, oh, this is a quote within a quote. Let's just do it. Let, why not? <laughs> so yeah, they're like, okay, this kid has confessed to murdering two cousins? Question mark. And now he's saying he killed this girl, which is, it's extra confusing to them because Louise Stala was murdered. Okay. Like, that's true. Absolutely, her body was found. They have no idea what happened there. But this kid is also claiming that. So now they're even further in this rabbit hole because they're like, well, I mean, she is, has been murdered. Mm-hmm. So did he do it? And if he did do it, then maybe there is these two kids back in Brooklyn that he did murder. Yeah. That so are missing. They're keeping him in custody and they're really trying to like sort out what is real and what isn't good they're doing their jobs (laughs) yeah they are so the boston evening transcript wrote in an article on june 8th 1908 titled anthony santo sent to asylum boy who confessed to murder of stall a girl found to be feeble-minded feeble-minded for killing people quote anthony santo The 13-year-old boy, this one says 13, he's been also reported as 14, but the 13-year-old boy who confessed to the murders of four children, including Luis Sala of Dedham, and who also said he assassinated President McKinley, was today (laughs) committed to the Taunton Insane Asylum. He was examined by Dr. John W. Pratt and Dr. Andrew H. Hodgson, who found that he is feeble-minded and afflicted by delusions. For five hours on Sunday, the boy underwent an examination by the town and state officers, and the only conclusion that could be reached was that he was a degenerate who was willing to confess anything through weak-minded bravado. The police satisfied themselves that all his takes... That all... (laughs) What did I write here? The police satisfied themselves that all... His takes of his own wickedness are of his own imagining. I don't know what I wrote there. I must have been going through it. We're rolling with it. Basically. Oh, tales. It's supposed to say tales. All his tales are of his own wicked, wickedness. There we go. And are of his own imagining. correct. His parents say that his mind has been afflicted since he had scarlet fever seven years ago. End, end quote. That's what she's blaming it on. Okay. Yeah. So the, he's inv- interrogated, examined all of that by countless doctors. And they're just like, I'm sorry, this gets fucking crazy. Yeah. Especially if they can't find any witnesses or <clears throat> evidence of the two quote unquote cousins. And that then Louise, gone. And then there was another girl he said he murdered. I believe her name was Grace or something. Okay. So he's just out of his mind. And, Just trying to take credit for things. Yeah. So he was 13 or 14, young man, mm-hmm. but he was sentenced to the Taunton insane asylum, and it's believed that he was there until he died. I'm sure, like a lot of patients were. Exactly. It was easier to be like, oh, I don't know, put him away and <laughs> mm-hmm. tuck him away where no one can see them. So the last quote, famous. Patient of Taunton State Hospital is arguably the most well known. It is a woman named Jane Toppin. Okay. St. Louis Post Dispatch reported on November 10th, 1901, quote, Miss Toppin is a trained nurse and for more than a decade has come and gone in Cape Cod homes in times of sickness. She is a middle-aged woman, stout and jolly, with a genial smile and a friendly manner that made friends for her on every side. But of late, it has been told that wherever she went, sudden and unexpected death went also. Suspicion was aroused, and when in the brief space of six weeks, an entire family, whom she attended, all died suddenly and mysteriously, the shadow of suspicion deepened into the black charge of murder, under which Miss Toppin now rests. For two months, she has been followed and shadowed by detectives, and as a result of their investigation, she was arrested and brought to jail. She has since been indicted by the grand jury on one count. End quote. Wow. So, yeah, she's just this, like, nice, big, jolly old nurse. Mm-hmm. And then kind of snowballed because people were like, wait a minute. A lot of people dying. Yeah. What's happening here? A lot of people dying under Jane's care. Yeah. So when it says at the end of the article that she was indicted on one count, This one count was one count of murder for a woman named Mary E. Gibbs. Mary E. Gibbs. And Jane was arrested and held in jail uh, for this murder where while she was there, she maintained her innocence the whole time. She's like, I did not do this. Mm -hmm. And her lawyer didn't necessarily maintain Jane's innocence, but instead said that she was not guilty by reason of insanity. Okay, and he would be like, "I'll make my case very clear when we go to trial, and I'll prove as much that she's basically just insane." And meanwhile, Jane is just like, "No, I just didn't do it." Yeah, just be my goddamn lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, and just say that I didn't do it, and that I'm not going to plead guilty, and I'm not going to play, not guilty, guilty. not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, she's like, "I just straight up didn't do it." Exactly. The Boston Evening Transcript reported on November 5th, 1901, in an article titled, Insanity in Jane Toppin's Family. Quote, the theory that Jane Toppin, guilty or not guilty of wholesale poisoning, wholesome poisoning? Not sure. (laughs) I don't know what I wrote there. Poisoning. Okay. Is mentally unbalanced as gaining ground. It is stated in support of this idea that her family was mentally weak and that her sister, Nellie Kelly, is at present hopelessly insane in the Medfield Asylum. Jane Toppin's two attempts at suicide are also adduced in support of this theory. Another sister of the accused is said to be living in the West and a third kept a store on Shawmet Avenue until recently when she removed to New York. Counsel for the prisoner, James S. Murphy, says he expects to prove his client's innocence and will make the government show its hand at the preliminary hearing. A new bit of evidence is indicted. Nope. A new bit of evidence is indicated by the story that Mrs. Bola Jacobs of Somerville, who was in the Cadamette Cottage during Mrs. Gibbs' illness, says the patient became unconscious shortly after the administration of a dose of supposed medicine by Miss Toppin. Wow. The Fort Wayne News reported on June 24th, 1902. Jane Toppin is not guilty. Quote, Miss Jane Toppin was found not guilty yesterday afternoon on the charge of poisoning Mrs. Mary E. Gibbs, for whom she acted as a nurse. She was freed of the charge because of her insanity... And by order of the court, she was committed to the Taunton Insane Asylum for the rest of her life. So they just completely ignored her and just went with whatever the lawyer said. Whatever the lawyer said. And there was also a bunch of people who were like, yeah, every time she left, these people were sick. Wow. And then the fact that there was literally a whole family that was under her care and they all died. Yeah. So obviously something was going on, whether it was purposefully or she was just a shitty nurse yeah exactly the defense called no oh this is still the article the defense called no witnesses except the alienists who declared the defendant insane the verdict was reached after 35 witnesses had been examined miss toppin has was tried on the specific charge of murdering mrs gibbs at cadamet but she is accused of having killed 14 persons 14 total wow yeah so This article says 14 people. And as time has passed, because this was like from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. uh, As time has passed, it's been said that she killed at least 31 people. And this would have all been with morphine and strychnine. And then in some cases, people argue that it's actually closer to 70 people that she killed. 70 people. Well. Because she was a nurse for so long. And was sometimes taking out like whole families and who's going to believe the insane Mm -hmm. versus a nurse who is taking care of them and then lies and says Mm -hmm. oh they were acting this way oh they hurt themselves oh i couldn't stop them yeah exactly and um what was this here oh yeah so closer to 70 people i mean who knows it could just be like expanded over time because of the lore and whatever but Mm -hmm. Regardless, people are like, absolutely, she did it, and there's more people. So Jane Toppin remained at the Taunton State Hospital until she died in 1936 at the age of 81. She was there for a long time. Yeah. And speaking of 1936, by this year, the optimistic facade of the hospital started to just completely collapse. Mm -hmm. Especially after Massachusetts Governor James Curley had gone for a visit. And he denounced the unsanitary conditions, the overcrowding and neglect. And he said, quote, some wards I visited were horrible places to put animals in, let alone human beings. Wow, it was that bad. It was that overcrowded and ill managed and all of that. Well, that's what happens with those places because they make it seem like it's such a, a good thing mm-hmm. for people to put their family members in. And then they just don't. Keep anything don't take care of them get overcrowded because everyone is like what an easy solution the residents are being abused by the staff and manipulated gaslighted and a lot of those people aren't supposed to be there too so they're made to seem like they're crazy Mm -hmm. or they have all these mental issues and you're like no i just have anxiety because you know my family's fucked up yeah whatever the case is and they're like And especially because it is around, like, the turn of the 18th century, uh, 19th century. And it's so much easier for doctors to handle a physical ailment. It's like, no, you're like, you literally have gangrene. Like, we have to cut your leg off. But if you're, like, trying to cure a mental illness that you don't even understand, a lot of the times people are not handled properly. Not believed, not taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Or given wrong diagnoses where you're like that's not at all what i described and yeah this isn't helping in any way and they're like i don't care well i'm supposed to i'm the doctor i know better treat you for what i think is right and if it's not working for you that's on you and that's not on me mm-hmm. so after the turn of the 20th century overcrowding poor living conditions all of that at most state hospitals was just the norm they were all in disrepair basically Physical ailments and diseases were treatable for the most part, like I said. But when you had a family member who was struggling with mental illness, it was easier to just house them in a state hospital and forget about them, which is so scary because they're not getting the proper care that they need. And treating mental illnesses were usually a pretty scary process. And it would include treatment like insulin shock treatment, which is where an epileptic fit and subsequent coma were induced. By a massive dose of insulin. Oh, wow. They also would practice hydrotherapy where a patient was restrained in a tub filled with really, really hot or really cold water. And they would be strapped in there for hours. Oh, my God. And sometimes even days, especially because a lot of these hospitals were understaffed. Yeah. Electroconvulsive shock therapy was used all the time. And then, of course, there was lobotomies. Oh, yeah, I'm sure that those were huge during that time. And all of these, quote, treatments just worsened the conditions of most people. So as time's going on, you're getting further into the 20th century. There was a lot of drug based treatments that were becoming more common. So you could medicate people who were, quote, unquote, insane. So this led to a lot of people being discharged uh, more often, which did reduce the population at state hospitals. But the condition conditions at these hospitals were still so terrible because they hadn't been maintained. Yeah. And the treatments were not up to par. Like you can't just keep giving people lobotomies and shock therapy. So a lot of the state hospitals began closing down. Plus there was like outside pressures from all kinds of people and governors and JFK and stuff. But community members. I won't get into all of that. But they did start closing down. And sadly, a lot of them started closing down very irresponsibly and, like, suddenly. And just probably dumping the residents. Yeah. So in Taunton's case, staff and doctors resigned very hastily in 1975. And their reasons were, quote, hospital care has been deterior- deteriorating for two or three years. And some parts of the hospital have already reached the snake pit stage. Snake pit stage? Yeah. Yeah. As in snakes in a pit. Yeah. In this place. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They so were like, we these are poor so residents. overcrowded. These place, these wards, these rooms, these That's crazy. everything is basically just a cesspool of people and we're done. So because these doctors and personnel were just like, I'm out, then the hospital had to shut down. Yeah, who's going to run it. Exactly. So the main hospital building was closed that same year. It was just done. And the Kirkbride building, which is like that main hospital building, it's the administrative building. It's the one that has like those curative wings and stuff. Mm -hmm. That was um, abandoned. So was the West Infirmary. And then despite being added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1994 the these buildings were just left to deteriorate with little effort made to maintain them and then in 1999 the dome collapsed under its own weight so you can see like aerial shots of like it's beautiful buildings like because they were beautiful Mm -hmm. and then there's just like this collapsed hole in them and then after that point there was like this large fence that was put up because they were trying to stop trespassers and all of that On March 19th, 2006, a fire destroyed a huge portion of what was left of the Kirkbride building, and the rubble was cleared out by bulldozers, and the entire Kirkbride building was eventually demolished in the late 2000s, along with 360,000 square feet of buildings and associated pedestrian tunnels. Wow, that's a lot of buildings. Because remember, there was over 40 buildings on this Mm. property, and... Over 50,000 tons of concrete and brick were used to fill in the tunnels and basement areas. And I wonder what they use those tunnels for. I think because there were so many buildings, it was just easier to travel that way. Hmm. Um, just like a lot of people don't realize how many tunnels there really are. Like even downtown Brantford, there's tunnels all over the place. That are, con- yeah, that are Yeah, they're like connecting different parts of downtown. I had no idea. Like, you can take a tunnel from the Armories to BCI. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense because it's on the same street, but mm-hmm. holy shit, I had no idea. There's been, like, petitions from students at Laurier to open up the underground tunnels again so it's easier for them to travel and access um, during the winter and rain and stuff. Yeah, that's smart. They should totally do that. I know. I and then they it. need security to patrol down oh, there. Oh, God, because yeah. Downtown Brantford's Wild shit always happens in tunnels. <laughs> so, yeah, like, there's underground tunnels in a lot more places than you'd think just can't see them because they're underground (laughs) very astute Mm -hmm. so with the when they were like demolishing all these buildings there was a lot of architectural features that were salvaged salvaged and sold because they're like you know like gothic revival and like victorian style shit like there's granite um really cool like light fixtures and furniture and all that so they were a lot of character so they were like salvaging that off to other companies or individuals whatever and when the parts of the hospital were abandoned there was like the kirkbride building and the western infirmary and a bunch of buildings but the eastern infirmary and several of the buildings had actually been kept in operation for a long time and in the early 90s Taunton State Hospital underwent a $19 million capital improvement to just upgrade facilities and expand beds and stuff like that. But the full closure of the institution was announced in 2012, effectively consolidating services to the new psychiatric hospital built in Worcester. So we've come full circle because originally this lunatic asylum was built in 1853 to relieve overcrowding at Worcester. Mm Mm-hmm. And now in 2012, when it's totally closed down, it's because they're just going to send patients back to the new place in Worcester. So they move them just to move them back. (laughs) So like, it's just crazy how it comes full circle. It is. Yeah. How everything is connected. So, uh, yeah, I believe now it's pretty much just all abandoned. Uh, If you go on like cool websites, like Abandoned Places America and stuff like that, you can see a lot of really cool photos of when people would illegally sneak in there and see the Kirkbride building before it was demolished. Yeah. And those are really, like, very cool, very beautiful photos. But um, at the end of the day, it was an asylum for a very long time. Yeah. And so this area is pretty spooky. And people visiting the property say it's haunted. And they have been touched by invisible hands. And their legs have been grabbed, which is really creepy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a building that was called the Goss Building, and it was one of the buildings that was still in use up until its 2012 closure, and this building is said to house a lot of spirits, but the one that is seen the most is a man in white who appears on the third floor. Okay, on the third floor. He likes that third floor. And then at night, people see obes. Obes? Obes. They see obes. They see obes, and they go, what's an obe? (laughs) And you go, it's a ball of (laughs) white. So at night, people see orbs floating around the property. And they hear banging, screams, and moans coming from the woods behind the hospital. Oh, that's creepy. And then allegedly parts of the hospital were used by satanic cults during the 1960s and 1970s. Well, talking about cults... (laughs) No way. Yeah. Do you have something to say about cults? I've got some things to say about cults. And actually on Mill Street in Easton, which is along the top left edge of the triangle, Mm. there is a sign marking the location of John Seely Sawmill from the 18th century. And it says that John's son, Nathan, was a wizard who employed satanic imps to run the mill through the night. Oh my god. Some believe that Nathan was visited by the devil who made a deal for the free labor. And Andrew Lake, the expert on Bridgewater Triangle, believes that the imps they were referred to are actually Pukwudgies. <gasps> ah! Oh All circle again! Oh my god. took like really Billy Wonka, but cooler. Definitely cooler. <laughs> and... Also in the 1980s, what was known as the Satanic Panic oh God. terrorized ciz- citizens of the country and Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. But this paranoia grew to include the abduction and sexual abuse of children in America. Yes, it did. That was basically the whole foundation of it. Yep. And adding fuel to the fire, a woman by the name of Michelle Smith... A Canadian psychiatric patient published a book alongside with her uh, psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, whom she later married. Oh, God. This is so unethical. Very unethical. Titled, Michelle Remembers, which details her repressed memories of abuse at the hands of her mother's cult, The Church of Satan. Oh, my God. I don't even know what to think about this. It's a cult. I mean, it's just so unprofessional. You're, like, basically banging your patient, a psychiatric patient, and then you release a book with her because you're totally capitalizing off of her, probably, delusions. Yeah. And this is what contributes to the already fucked up times in the 80s, especially, like, damn. Yeah, it it created a lot, a lot of chaos. Yes. People were terrified. And according to an article written by Dan Schwan in the Pacific Standard, in the book, she claims that she, quote, had been imprisoned in cages among living snakes, forced to watch as members of her mother's cult slaughtered kittens in front of her and even endured 81 consecutive days of uh, consistent physical abuse as the cultist engaged in a prolonged ritual to summon Satan himself, end quote. Oh, my goodness yeah that's wild i don't believe it <laughs> <laughs> well i guess we'll find out right sorry no she even went on oprah winfrey's show oh and um another guest laurel rose wilson who also wrote a memoir uh titled satan's underground oh god Were they, were they both did they both have the same psychiatrist oh i maybe <laughs> god, maybe sister wives Connections everywhere, right? <laughs> but this opened the floodgates for other people all over the country to share their stories of mm-hmm. repressed memories from their childhood of satanic rituals, claims of pedophilia, and worshipping the devil. Oh, God. Listen, this, is, this is a panic, that's for sure. Yeah. And Lawrence even held seminars, which were held nationwide for officers to help identify what look, what to look out for. And cultists. Mm. This is so loaded. I'm just like, wow. Yeah. And many of these testimonies were placed under review, and it was determined that there was suggestive interviewing by the social workers and lack of evidence. So I will agree with that. Yeah. Very, very discredited. And questionable characters. Yeah. Well, already the whole relationship is questionable. All of this is insane. And like, it's just that a panic. Yeah. Think about, Everyone's like, freaking out. I was like, "What other panics?" There's like a dancing plague. Yeah, that was like with the gram. Five hundred years ago, mm-hmm. but like that was a panic. You got the um, uh, uh, There's panic. There's, there's other. There's other <laughs> ones. There's other ones. Panic at the Disco <laughs> only has one good album, but that's fine. <laughs> Well, Michelle was later, yeah, she was discredited because there was no evidence of any of the accusations made in the book. So there was no articles of a car crash that was described at that time. And during that time, the newspapers reported on every car crash. Um Teachers and friends friends could not recall Michelle missing for long periods during school, so specifically the book mentioned that 81-day ritual Mm -hmm. and Michelle was forced to participate in, but others confirmed that she attended school during that time yeah people would notice if you were gone for like two and a half months yeah and so when so while the stories in the book don't take place in massachusetts they do influence the satan craze that was happening in the area oh absolutely in the area just basically all around the world it was even reaching like the uk at that point yeah and in may of 1985 There would be a news program that ran a segment on Satan worship and detailed animal mutilations that were thought to be part of malicious uh, rituals. They also believed that rock music was used to worship the devil and believed that there were satanic messages that you could hear when you played songs backwards. Was like Judas Priest yeah like there's the like Beatles. a lot of songs a lot of them don't make any sense Ugh. but some of the most notable ones would be iron Maiden's still life oh yeah which sounds like someone saying quote hmm, hmm what he said to the ding with the ting bounce don't meddle with things you don't understand that's ridiculous End quote. that just sounds like me when i'm reading a quote i wrote terribly it's- It's it's terrible. (laughs) What did I write here? Mean to tings and Ting to Ting. Don't mess with tings. Yeah. Just like, (laughs) oh, sure. You can pick out a message from that. Or there's also Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Oh, yeah. That was a big one. Yeah. So when played backwards, it sounds like, quote, oh, here's to my sweet Satan. The one whose little path would make me sad. Whose power is Satan. He will give (laughs) those with him six, six, six. There was a little tool shed where he made us suffer. Sad, Satan. And doesn't even make sense. No sense at all. And how is that worshipping Satan? Satan is just a bully at that point. Why would you want to worship him? They are He's grasping just at straws. He's going to you in a tool shed and beat your ass. Six, six, six. It's like crazy. It's such grasping at straws. Yeah. And it's like believed that this cult or similar cults We're practicing and sacrificing for like love triangles and jealousies, but of course, no, yo, come on, tale as old as time, yeah. And that kind of also leads us into UFO sightings. I've been waiting. You've been waiting, like, waiting all like, day. The I, I know that there's a UFO sighting or two. Where the heck are they? Who doesn't want to talk about UFOs? And here they are. They've arrived. UFOs have entered the chat. Uh, UFOs <laughs> have entered the chat. And according to Sam Stahl, who wrote Suburban Legends, True Tales of Murder, Mayhem, and Minivans, oh, mentions that on May 10th, 1760, residents oh. would claim their first UFO sighting. Around 10 a.m., they would claim to see a sphere of fire with the light from it being so intense it cast shadows. That's a fucking ancient sighting. Mm Mm-hmm. Old sighting. Damn. And in 1908, there was a sighting that was documented by local papers. Mm -hmm. And in 1968, uh, sightings with five people claiming to see a strange ball of light floating in the wooded area of the trees near Rojo Another, like, flaming ball mm-hmm. july 3rd 1972 in south shore massachusetts something is caught flying through the air uh-uh. 1973 with we a hobo customer sitting in joseph's restaurant located on park street claimed to have seen a ufo and at the exact same time the power failed at the restaurant oh my god i would die and when it started working again Residents went out and saw two large, perfectly formed circles imprinted into the ground behind the restaurant. What would you even do? I would be, like, amazed and also horrified. I I, I don't know. I'd probably just pretend it didn't happen. I'd be like, I'm not coming back to this diner. I'm going to go to Denny's instead. <laughs> <laughs> go to Denny's? Go literally anywhere else? I'm moving out of Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah. Although UFOs will find you no matter the, what. They'll find you no matter what. We've had experiences. Um, Yes. Yes, that's yes we have, but that's for another time. Okay, so I was just like thinking, like yes, yeah, had a few. That's a then lot my to mind go was into. wandering. Okay, okay. Nineteen seventy six had two sightings of UFOs landing near Route Forty Four near Taunton. Oh shit, Route Forty Four. Route Forty Four. Is there is there a little creepy red eyed ginger hitchhiker on this road? Yes, there is. I already told you about it. You did tell us about it. Maybe it's bringing him home. Yeah, that's true. Maybe he's an alien. That's why he's red eyes. Maybe. Maybe there's a red-eyed alien out there. And in 1979, uh, junction of routes 24 and 106, which is near the center of the triangle, Jerry Lopez, who was a radio newsman in Boston at WHDH, said he encountered a UFO on March 23rd. He claims this UFO craft was an inverted pentagon, with bright red lights on the top, a single large white light coming from the point at the bottom, with rows of lights of red and white around the edges. I tend to believe this man because everyone always says that it's like a flying saucer. Yeah. And he's like, no, oh, this was an inverted pentagram. Yeah, this is specific. He's Pentagon. talking about, yes, Pentagon. I, I went to the satanic part there. <laughs> inverted. Pentagon. Pentagon, yes. With lights, specific red and white lights Mm -hmm. and um, a a large white light coming from the point at the bottom. Oh, that's so specific. Very specific. I believe you, sir. And in 1994, um, a law enforcement officer reported a sighting of a triangular craft floating in midair with red and white lights. Again? Yep, again. And in 1999... There was a UFO moving incredibly fast, along with a loud noise reported near Lake Nippon. next. Oh, June fifteenth, two thousand and three, southeastern Massachusetts. A fireball was seen zooming through the sky. A lot of fireballs here. A lot of a fireballs. Lot of fireballs and floating orbs. Yep, July fifth, two thousand and three, just outside of uh, Seekonk. Massachusetts a diamond shape was seen moving through the sky. Oh, a diamond shape. Diamond shape this time. I wonder if that could be like mixed up with a pentagon. Maybe, yeah, maybe someone just didn't know their shapes or maybe a, it's a different alien. Almost a pentagram again. Right? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> a pentagram. <laughs> November 4th, 2005. A reported sighting was uh found in West uh Bridgewater in Massachusetts. July 4th, 2007, Rehoboth, Massachusetts. There is a disc shape with revolving bands of light. Ooh. September 18th, 2008, in Holbok. Uh, claims of seeing a circular craft moving through the sky. February 16th, 2009, a reported sighting in, e- in southeastern Massachusetts. In July 1st, 2010, Berkeley, a fireball was see- seen moving through the sky again. January tenth, two thousand and ten in Norton. A triangle shape, and an eyewitness says: quote, Strange craft with amazing speed. While outside, I caught a red dot far away that appeared to be going up very fast, then changed direction and within seconds was stopping above a neighbor's house. It was about a 100 feet off the ground and had an amber light and a red light. And it was silent as it turned almost all the way around and made a slight humming sound and started leaving. Then it was a red dot and went very fast and made a cracking sound and I could not see it anymore. End quote. Oh, my God. That punctuation was nil. Wow, that was, yeah, that, that was, was one whole sentence. That was like me when I use my microphone to send a text message. I'm like, just voice. Voice to text. You're like, yeah period. It's like, period. I said, period. No punctuation because I don't know how to do that. So it's just <laughs> <laughs> rambling. Just like keep <laughs> going. Send it and to going. my sister and she's like, probably what the fuck is this bitch on (laughs) could (laughs) learn some goddamn grammar and punctuation she's like i expect nothing less it's only emojis or zero punctuation (laughs) (laughs) one or the other (laughs) december 7th 2010 in east bridgewater there was a flash seen in the sky Fireball. fireball october 18th 2012 in brockton there was a claim of seeing a triangle shape in the air fireball fireball December twenty first, two thousand and thirteen, in Bridgewater, an egg-shaped object was seen in the sky. One egg is forty eggs. What? <laughs> forty <laughs> eggs? What? Oh, Tyson is even sitting there. It's from um I think you should leave. On Netflix, the like okay. sketch comedy show. Gotcha. One egg is forty eggs. Get <laughs> rockstar. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So it's okay. An egg shape an A shape was seen in the sky. November 29th, 2014 in Bridgewater. A circle for an object was seen in the sky. And July 14th in just outside of Seekonk, a circle for an object was seen in the sky and supposedly 11 witnesses reported seeing this. So fireball. Fireball. That's so many sightings. A lot of sightings in the last few and years. And that yeah. is the reported sightings. Yeah, There's probably so many more people who are just like fucking high as shit on their deck one day like, the fuck man, what is that? Is that a fireball or am I high? Swink Scoop. Swinks. <laughs> Jinkies. drinkies, Scoop. Damn, that's a lot of UFOs. I want to see a UFO in the Bridgewater Triangle. But it has to be a fireball. Yeah, I gotta see a fireball going through the sky. Or a pentagon. Mm-hmm. Inverted pentagon. A uh, couple of lights floating around it. Fireball crazy. Yeah, that's like so many tales from the Bridgewater Triangle. Yes. That is an insane amount of stories. Can you imagine? I was like, I don't know if I have enough. <laughs> I we were both very concerned <laughs> that we did not have enough for we're this. Both like, are you having a hard time? And it's like, well, I mean, I have a lot of info, but I don't know if it's going to be like enough for a good storytelling. Here we go though. We've put a whole fucking episode together. Tyson, how long is this episode? two hours and eight minutes wow like that's an hour and four minutes each of content a decent episode for you guys out there yeah hopefully you guys enjoyed this like let us know what you think we can collaborate more often yeah we should just do that anyway because that's just fun yeah screw what you all think i don't care (laughs) just kidding we we do care we care but yeah that's a little taste of both of both of what we do yeah but like the cryptids ufos all that spooky stuff and then told you some dark history some true crime and some cryptids man that's the bridgewater triangle it's fucking wild in and that's like definitely not all of the crazy stories like there's probably so much more happening in there mm-hmm. and even like when it comes to the photo that i'm gonna post on instagram it has uh just little legends basically like a little arrow that's pointing and it's like this is the location of whatever and it's known for this yeah and you know some of those are maybe a little exaggerated but regardless that's the shape of the triangle yeah and we we talked about everything of importance from that image so damn that was a loaded episode that was that was a nice long loaded episode and we really hope that you guys enjoyed it yeah and it's been long enough so i'll just just sign off now i mean i'll be back next week with a tale for you guys yes. i i don't know what that tale is but you'll find out and you're gonna have to listen to it and then Paige, you'll be back before we know it i'll be back in august you'll yes be back at the end of august i accidentally skipped june i'm sorry you don't have to be sorry it was just a loaded month you yeah know? it was it was a busy month but <laughs> you get me twice in two months so yeah and that and july you're you're on it today and last week it was Steph. like it's been a fun month you guys are getting spoiled tons of guest hosts and i mean next month page you're gonna be on it maybe there's other stuff going on in the works i don't want to talk about it right now but like something cool could be happening you never know and yeah i'll be back next week dyson will be here again with with me he'll be back like he usually is And thanks for tuning in. Hope you like the Bridgewater Triangle. Paige, thanks for being here. Great job. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun again. So much fun always. And you, listener, we'll catch you on the dark side.